Okay, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon in Israel. Um, okay, so we, uh, Yaakov has come in and uh, essentially taken the blessing that Yitzchak had intended to give to Esau. And then Esau is extremely upset, cries, and his father gives him a blessing as well, which apparently is not really so much a separate blessing as it is a shared blessing. However, the blessing primarily was given to Yaakov, and there will be opportunities, says Yitzchak, for Esau to throw off the shackles, either because he uh, will ascend for some reason, which is the Rashbam, or because of his undue suffering. That's the Ramban's take that. Israel is not permitted to treat Esau harshly. And in fact, they did, they violated that at one point and David was punished, that's the Ramban. In any event, the outcome of all this is in verse number 41 of chapter 27, which is Vayistom Esau et Yaakov ala bracha brecho aviv. So Esau hate, literally hated, here they say harbored a grudge in my translation, but Listom is to hate. He bore hatred towards Yaakov. On the blessing that his father had given him, it sounds it's really ambiguous. Is he upset primarily that Yaakov got the blessing or is he upset about his own blessing? He doesn't like the blessing that he got, namely that fundamentally Yaakov is the superior and he will at times be able to throw off the shackles. But in either event, the bottom line is the word Vayistom. So Vayomer Esav Bolibo, Esav said in his heart, he thought, means the days of my father's mourning will come, because my father at one point will die, and I will kill my brother. So it doesn't mean necessarily, as Ramban points out, he just thought it and didn't say it. Sometimes Bolibo just means that's what he's thinking, but not necessarily that he's not speaking of it. Because in the very next verse, it says, by you Rivka was told by somebody what Esav said, and now she has to act to protect Yaakov, and in fact, to protect Esav, because if Esav will kill Yaakov, she'll lose them both. The, uh, just to review what we spoke about last week, this is why I to make one last point about this question of Yitzchak, um, Yitzchak's blessing of Yaakov and then of Esav. And I mentioned that there is, some people read it as, in fact, there were two different blessings. It was not Yitzchak's intention to ever give Esav what we call the covenantal blessing. And that's one reading of it. But according to that reading, which I think is less, less, less plausible, I think it's a not, not the best reading because in that reading, we, um, have, first of all, Rivka making a mistake, misunderstanding Yitzchak's intentions, and she seems quite perceptive. Uh, secondly, uh, Yitzchak, and this is an important point, Yitzchak had called in uh, Esau and said, listen, I want to bless you before I die. So it sounds like he's, he thinks he may die next day or whatever, and this is the blessing he wants to give before he's dying. It doesn't sound like he has two blessings in mind. This is the blessing. Number three, the argument that Yitzchak misunderstands the blessing that he has is supported by the fact that he never instructed Esau in the first place not to marry Canaanite women. Esau, at the end of chapter 26, we were told, married two Canaanite women. 
Hittites, which are Canaanites, and Benot Chet, as we'll encounter them again momentarily. And we know that Asa will do anything his father wants. He says, Hineni. So it is quite striking that Yitzhak did not prevent Esau from marrying Canaanites. Covenantal blessing or no covenantal blessing. It's very surprising. It means fundamentally, he doesn't see that as a problem. If you don't see that as a problem, it certainly supports the view that he misunderstands. In addition to that, in addition to that, we have the puzzle that comes up very soon, which is Rivka calls in Yaakov, in verse number 43, she says, your brother, in, in 42, she says, Ace of your brother is literally consoling himself. He's planning to kill you. He's thinking about killing you. And now in Mem Gimel, she says, now, listen, my son, to what I say, obey me. It's exactly the same language she used earlier when she instructed him to go get the two goats, to slaughter the goats, to bring the goats to her, to prepare the food, etc., etc. Now the same language is found in Pasuk Mem Gimel, Run away, brach, to escape. Escape to my brother who was in Haran. And you will remain with my brother, Yamim Achadim, for a few days, a while, Yamim Achadim, until the wrath, the anger of your brother abates. Until the anger abates. When that happens, I will send and bring you back. Why should I lose you both at the same time? That is to say, if he kills you, I lose you, and I also lose him if he kills his brother. Why should I lose you both? It reminds us actually here, and I haven't spoken about this yet, reminds us very much of the story of Cain and Hebel, the first story of fratricide, the first story of brothers. There too, the what infuriates Cain and eventually causes the death of, of, of Hevel is that they both bring sacrifices to God and God favors one over the other. So that's a story we have to bear in mind always in the book of Reishit, which is often about brothers. In any event, let's put that aside for now. But this is her plan. Leave for a short time till the wrath of your brother abates. Then I'll send for you and bring you back. And that's the best way to handle the situation because there's a clear and present danger. I'll put that aside for a moment. I'll come back to that momentarily. But I wanted to get to the next puzzle. So Rivka now speaks to Yitzchak. I am disgusted. My wife is made miserable because of the daughters of Chet, Benot Chet, of the two women that Esau marries. Esau marries two Hittite women. And we were told earlier at the end of chapter 26, and they called bitterness of spirit for Rivka and Yitzchok. So Yitzchok's not happy with it either. He didn't prevent it, but they make him unhappy. And now Rivka says to Yitzchok, we've had enough, I've had enough with these Canaanite women. Yaakov, Isha, 
if Yaakov will marry such women also from the women who dwell in this land, why do I live? So third time Rivka has asked these ultimate questions about herself. Right? Lama in Cain, Lama Zeanochi, and a third Lama as well. Um, now Lama Lichayim, because she sees Lama called to to uh, to ex- to extend the covenantal family, and if they both marry Canaanite women, what's to be? So that's what she says to Yitzchak. She doesn't sit, command Yitzchak; she doesn't instruct Yitzchak. She ostensibly complains to Yitzchak. At which point. Yitzchak calls in Yaakov. Vayikroi Yitzchak el Yaakov vayivorech oto. Vayitzavei vayomer lo lo tikach isha mibdot kinan. So the, the command of Yitzchak, the Torah calls it a bracha. He blesses him. That's one word. Key word vayivorech. Number two, another key word vayitzavei mitzvah. It's what Rivka had said earlier. Shema b'koli asher ani mitzava otach. And now he's very clear. You can't marry a woman from the from from Canaan. In other words, but my point is, this is with the this is with the intervention of, of Rivka. What Rivka gets Yitzchak to do is to think about it and allow him to make his decision. Allow him to make his decision. And yes, this will cause Yitzchak to say what he's about to say, which is important from several perspectives. Let's just read a little more. So Yitzchak says, Kumrech padena aram, beta betuel avi imecha, vikach lucha misham isha, mibnot lavanachi imecha. So he says, Go to the house of betuel, your father's, the mother of your, uh, father of your mother, take from there a woman. So we noted the two words that appear in this pasuk, kach and lech, kumrech padena here he's using the covenantal language, which he didn't use earlier. It means what Rivka has gotten him to understand now is the covenant. So now he uses the right language. Now we, we have the missing kafalech. Oh. Now he continues to speak. The text is... The, I mean, I'll continue. Oh, yeah, Scroll down. Scroll down. Next puzzle. Next puzzle is... El Shaddai is the language of chapter 17 when God speaks to Abraham and talks about the covenant. Ani El Shaddai, the Tarek Lufanai Be'et Amin. Kahal Amin is the language of chapter, same chapter, where God changes Avram's, Avram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah and talks about the covenant and talks about Kahal Amin. And then it's explicit in the next passage. Be'etein Luchar Birkat Abraham, Luchar Uzarachar Itach. Here is explicit. God should give you Rikat Avraham. Another key phrase, Eretz Megurecha, chapter 17, once again. So here it's through Rivka's intervention. Rivka's intervention that Yitzhak understands. What Yitzhak's able to do, remember, Rivka can't bless. Rivka can't give the bracha. I'll come back to that as well. Yitzhak has to give the bracha, but Rivka enables Yitzhak to see properly. And to give and to give Birkat Abraham to Abra, to Yaakov. So it's not a second blessing. It's a it's a new understanding of the one blessing that he has, which he formerly did not understand, borne out by the language of Kachvoleh. Okay, what's missing, of course, is the Hineni on Yaakov's part. We'll deal with that later. 
Here, there's something else very interesting about what Yitzchak says. And if we look carefully at the way Rivka spoke to Yaakov to leave, Yitzchak speaks to Yaakov to leave, but they're very different. And let me make the following observation. I would say important observation about these two different people sending Yaakov away. When Rivka tells Yaakov to leave back in chapter 27, the language was brach lecha. Kum brach lecha elavan afi charana. Verse 43. Livroch is to run away. It's always to run away. To run away. Flee. Flee to your, the house of my brother Lavan. And she calls the place of Lavan Charana. Go to Haran. That is where Lavan lives. He lives in Haran. Go to Haran. Flee to the house and go to Haran. You'll stay there for a while until the anger of your brother abates. And if you look carefully at the end of chapter 27, you notice that there are several words that speak of anger. One is the word Right? Af is one word. Um, another word is in verse 44. Af And I would add to Af and another word. Charon. Af is anger. So when Rivka speaks of Charon, go to Charon, yes, it is a place. But given the context of Harana, Af, Chema, and Harana, it's all about anger. So what is she saying to Yaakov? You have to run away. Why? Because where you are here is dangerous. You have to run away from here. You can't be here. It's a dangerous place. You have to go, one might say, into exile temporarily until I call you back. And that speaks, actually, the idea of Yaakov forced to go into exile speaks to, uh, in general, exile in the Torah and the Bible. Exile in the Torah is the great punishment. That's the punishment. The land will spit you out. You go into exile. That's the Tochach of Vayikra. That's the Tochach of Devarim. And one can read Yaakov's dwelling in the house of Lava that we will study, hopefully soon, as a punishment. That's how Kasuto read it. And he pointed out, uh, which I think is, when you think about it, it's obvious that what happens to Yaakov in the house of Laban bears a striking resemblance to what Yaakov's, to Yaakov's behavior in his own house, namely the way he supplants his older brother through trickery and the way he deceives his old blind father. And you can see in Yaakov's uh, sojourn in the house of Laban, Precisely those things happening. The difference is that in the case of Yaakov in the house of Laban, for the most part, the victim of the deception is none other than Yaakov himself. So we have what the Mishnah would call a mida connected mida, quid pro quo. What you give is what you get. And that's typical of biblical punishment. That's the first time the Torah speaks of punishment. It's a perfectly chiastic verse. An eye for an eye, ayin tachat ayin. Okay, what the rabbis believe, you don't carry it out. Maybe they believe it's not the simple reading of the text. But as the Ramban points out, fundamentally it should be. That is to say, in a theoretical sense, that's justice. Justice means what I do is what I get. That's justice. So when she says, to run away, flee, that speaks of punishment.
But when Yitzchak speaks to Yaakov in chapter 28, for the first part, he never mentions the word Haran at all. He doesn't say go to Haran. He says go someplace else. He says go to Aram. Aram is not Haran. Aram is different. And the purpose is not to run away. He never says brach. He doesn't say run away. Not at all. He says kum kach He does not say brach because it's not a punishment. As far as Yitzhak is concerned, it's something very different, which is covenantal opportunity. Because in point of fact, if you marry the Canaanite women, Yaakov, you can't be covenantal. And there's a reason for that. It's not because it's, it's the wrong thing to do. There are plenty of wrong things to do. It's because since the covenant explicitly stated to Abram is that you shall subdue Canaan, which is what Noah said to Shem, the he Canaan Evid Lama. So in the Torah, it's about subjugating Canaan. You can't have a situation where the covenantal commandment is subjugate Canaan and your own children are in fact Canaanites. They'd be half Canaanites. That's not possible. So therefore, marrying the Canaanite for Yaakov is a disqualifier. It's not necessarily a disqualifier after Yaakov, as we will see, but for Yaakov, it's certainly a disqualifier. And that's what we have to say, or hinting at. And Yitzhak gets it. And he says, not brach. And now the question, of course, is, and this is a very important question. We speak of the Yaakov in the house of Laban in two different senses. One is punishment. That's how Kasuto took it. And it's a good reading. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, we speak of it as covenantal opportunity. And now the question is, because remember, what does it mean covenantal opportunity? What are the what are the conditions of the covenant given to Avraham? God God's told Avraham what the conditions are. You shall be a stranger in a foreign land, which is certainly what Yaakov will be. You'll be an Evid, that is what Yaakov will be. Yaakov says, God saw my Inuit. So Yaakov in the house of Laban will undergo Gerut, Abdut, and Inuit. You need that for the covenant. On the other hand, those are certainly unpleasant things. So it also can be viewed as punishment. And the question now becomes, how do you view this experience? How does Yaakov view the experience? Is it punishment or is it covenantal opportunity? And that's a very, very important question. That's a central question. Of course, it presupposes an understanding that Yaakov's experience in the house of Laban is gay with Abdut and Inui, which of course is exactly how Yaakov describes it after 20 years. And, um, Part of the answer has to do with education. When we learn from experiences, it can be covenantal, it can be constructive. If we learn nothing from it, then it's just suffering, and that's punishment. In the case of Yaakov, it clearly can be viewed and must be viewed as both, but it's interesting that Rivka sends him for one reason, and Yitzchok sends him for a very different reason. Now, it is true, and someone has noted in the chat, that Asaph said to himself, <coughs> right? When the days of my of the morning period of my father come, and that sounds like you know he doesn't want to kill 
uh, <coughs> Yaakov when his father is still alive. He doesn't want to do anything to hurt, to hurt Yitzchak. He's the devoted son. But Rivka is nonetheless concerned that somebody who, and she actually hints at it. She says, go away for a few days and I'll call you when your brother forgets about what happens. So she sees her son, Esau, whom she cares for, I would add, Rashi notwithstanding, she cares for Esau. <coughs> she knows who he is, but she also understands he's somebody who easily forgets. And we understand that perfectly, actually, because he lives in the moment. Who cares about birthrights? I'm hungry now, I'm dying from hunger now. Someone who lives in the moment can also act in the moment. So Rivka understands that Esau is a dangerous man because he's someone who acts in the moment, he's prone to forget He's gonna forget in a few days, even though he's crying bitterly today, but such a person can also forget as it were, what he's thinking about doing in the future and do it right away. So Rivka sees a danger, danger primarily to Yaakov and a danger to Esau. She doesn't want Esau to kill her bro his brother. She'll lose them both. And she says it explicitly, Lama Eshkal, that's another Lama, that's the third Lama. Lama Eshkal, Gam Shnechem Yom Echad, why should I lose it both? So now we have the story. So this is what I wanted to, first of all, review a bit from last week and to put out the why I believe that the interpretation that Yitzchak is mistaken initially is the much better interpretation than he has two different blessings to give. Um, here's the intervention of Rivka which gets Yitzchak to see it, to understand, and to get the right language. Here we have the Kach By the way, there is one other further complicating fact that we should bear in mind when we read chapter 27. I'll simply mention it now, and that's the following fact. The story of the blessing is a blessing that is passed down from Avram to Yitzchak, and from Yitzchak to Yaakov, and eventually Yaakov to all of his sons. But what's interesting is that the blessing that Yitzchak receives, or that Avram receives in connection with Yitzchak, which is found at the Akedah. At the end of the Akedah, after Avram so-called passes the test, and I'll read it to you at the end of chapter 22, there, there God says to Avram, or the Malach says, God's messenger says, I'll multiply you. And your descendants will literally inherit or take possession of the gate of their enemy. That's the blessing given to Avram, but it refers to Yitzchak, the son that is to be the covenantal son. Your only son. He has two sons. The only one is covenantal. That's chapter 22. Then yet Avram, understanding Sarah's role in his own life, that she was necessary in terms of choosing or understanding how the blessing proceeds. He wants to find somebody who understands how the blessing proceeds. That person is going to be Rivka. And he sets out to find Rivka to be Isaac's partner. Partner with perception. And the, the servant is sent out in chapter 24. We studied that story in the past and the family doesn't want her to let her go. At the end of it, he, 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 the family agrees to send her and they send her. And before they send Rivka off, which is at the end of chapter 24, 
they give her a blessing. This is verse number 60. Our sister, may you grow into thousands of myriads and may your descendants inherit the gate of their enemy. So the blessing given to Rivka by her family actually is I would say identical or virtually identical to the blessing that Yitzchak gets at the end of the Akedah. That is something very striking. So Rivka essentially has the same bracha Yitzchak got. They share the same blessing. She can't transmit it. The point is, the way it works is only Yitzchak can transmit the blessing that he got from his father. Rivka got the blessing from the other side of the family, which is still connected to Avram. Avram is interested. It is a plus that Rivka comes from, from, from Nachar's family, right? It's a plus. It's not negative. Yaakov, Avram didn't command him, find a member of my family. He said, find a member of, my, of, of the land from which I came. That is true. But you have a situation where Rivka and Yitzchok have the identical blessing. Now, the question is, how does that factor into the story? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not sure I have an answer. But I simply wanted to make that point. It's not a small point that Yitzchok and Rivka have been given identical blessings. In any event, what we have over here is Yaakov has been sent away for two different reasons by two different people. They're both important. He does require some kind of atonement. He's done the wrong thing. Or even if, even if he did the right thing, he ended up hurting people. And I just mentioned what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about Sefer Breshid and the Tanakh in general. The Tanakh in general and Breshid in spades is about very complicated situations. People have to make choices. And in life, typically, it's not that one choice, sometimes one is clearly right and one is clearly wrong. But very often in life, it's not so simple. And I would add very often there are two choices to make. One is the right choice, the better choice, but each choice has a downside to it. So the point, in point of fact over here, yes. It is certainly correct that Esau is completely inappropriate for the blessing of Abraham, Bukat Abraham, that's obvious. It's pretty clear to me that Yitzchak didn't understand the blessing that he himself possesses initially. But the way that Yaakov took the blessing, might it have worked a different way? Maybe. Might Rivka have been more straightforward and spoken to Yitzchak and had a conversation, an open conversation? Maybe. But in point of fact, she doesn't do that. She is described three times in the beginning of Parshat Toldot as the sister of Lavan. She's Lavan's sister. And why be straight if you can be crooked? Now, that's Lavan's thing. I mean, it's not even, it's not even straight and crooked. It's that you can be in the certain people for whom truth is actually not even a value. It's not even relevant, actually. Is it true? Is it not true? It's absolutely zero relevance. And the guy who comes to mind is Donald Trump, actually. Somebody's a liar. That truth has absolutely no meaning on any level for this guy. It's so dangerous, you know? There's no such thing. So the point is, in the case, I'm not saying Rifka's that way. What I'm saying is that Rifka's thinking about the goal. Lovin thinks about, what do I want to accomplish? And so is Rifka. And what she wants to accomplish is right. But she doesn't actually care very much how you accomplish it. And that for the Chumash, I think, is problematic. There's a price to be paid. 
There's a price to be paid. And Yaakov will pay that price. That's for certain. In any event, Yaakov is being sent away. And now, just to read a few more psukim, and I'll stop and take comments and questions. So it says, Vayishlach Yitzchak et Yaakov, Vayelch Padena Aram, Elavon ben Betuel Arami, Achi Rivka, Ein Yaakov V'yesav. Very interesting puzzle. So he sends it away to Lavan. The Torah again repeated. The sister, the brother of, the brother of, of Yaakov. Yaakov, of course. And the mother of Yaakov and Esau says Rashi, I don't know why the Torah said that. But of course, Rashi would say, I don't know why the Torah said that, given that Rashi has a, does a hat to job on Esau. Esau is very interesting character. Yes, there's a potential violence. He lived by the sword. The obedient son, complicated. But there's no sense in the story that I could detect maybe wiser than people than me can see this, I detect no deception in Esau. Yes, he's going to wait around until after his father dies to kill his brother. He doesn't want to hurt his father. There's not a sense of deception with Esau. There's a sense of violence. There's a sense of living in the moment. There's some all kinds of negatives. But the point is not understanding, but it's not deception. So the, each character is drawn in a very interesting way. And Rivka is the mother of Esau. She says straight out, why should I lose you both? And that's an important point. So Yaakov, Yitzchak sends them away to, not to Haran, to Aram. We'll see why Haran is a place of anger. The place of Lavan is a place of anger, but that's a separate point. And now we're told that Esau, now, now Esau sees, by Yar ki beirach Yitzchak et Yaakov, v'shilachit oto padena Aram, v'kachet lo misha misha, so Esau sees that Yitzchak, he didn't know this, that Yitzchak is not happy with the Canaanite women. He had no idea. Had Yitzchak told him earlier, of course he listened to his father. That's on Yitzchak. He didn't tell him. And he hears further that Yaakov obeyed his father. And that Yaakov has obeyed his parents. And he realized that the daughters of Canaan are evil in the eyes of Yitzchak. So therefore, therefore he went to the family of Yishmael. So he goes and he marries Machalat, the daughter of Yishmael, the sister of Nivayot. Nivayot is the oldest son of Yishmael. Sometimes the sisters are referred to in terms of their older brother, like with Miriam. But what's interesting is, once again, he means well, Esau, but two things. First of all, if the concern is the is the is the covenantal blessing, Yishmael has been excluded. That's the story of Akeha Yitzvah. So if the interest is in any covenantal sense, it would this can, this would reaffirm actually that Asaph cannot be covenantal. And secondly, as the Pasuk says, and as the commentaries note, he doesn't get rid of the other wives, he keeps them. He's still married to the Canaanite women, but in addition. He married the daughter of Yishmael, 
the son of Abraham. Now, there's something else interesting here that I'm not going to get into now, but it is curious that Yaakov is sent to marry from the mother's side of the family, whereas, he, whereas Esau marries, takes a wife from the father's side of the family. Let's leave that in abeyance for now. But this is the situation we have now. Yaakov was sent away by his parents and his mother had said, I'm gonna send for you in a few days. Yamim achadim, when Esau's wrath abates, I will send for you in a few days. And now we're about to come to one of the, I mean, they're all great, but one of the central stories of Sefer Breshit. Before we start with Vayetze, are there any comments or questions? Um, Rabbi Silver, there's a couple, yes. of, there's a couple of questions in the chat that I'd like to Go highlight. Um, from, let's see, from kind of, from uh, Ozzy Orbach. Uh, how does Rivka know that Esau is going to kill Yaakov? He tells people. Yeah. I, I addressed that. Ah, Yom Eli Bo, as the Ramban points out, does not mean he said it in his heart and no one knows about it. It's more about he's, he, he's determined. Right? Mm-hmm. You have it in yeah. actually with God. It's not that Ramban points out, and he has several examples of this, when one says Elibo is not to, to suggest that he also didn't say it. It just means he is determined to do it. He's decided. He made a decision. That's it. I've, de- I've decided. He's going to tell people. That's the Ramban. And he cites several other examples in the Bible where Elibo does not mean in his own in right. Now, of course, it is interesting. One might say that the use of the term Elibo is here for a different reason, which is, it could have said he said, but maybe it's here to underscore the uh, acuity, the, the deep uh, understanding, perception that uh, Rivka has. Because Rivka is a very, very perceptive, a problem is not perception. She sees perfectly well. Behavior is another story. Love and sister, okay. But the fact of the matter is, you know, she's focused on results. She's focused on uh, doing the right, getting the right results. She's a very, you know, we first meet her as a great uh, example, exemplar of, of chesed, of kindness, of, of welcoming, etc. But, you know, for her, it's less important how you arrive at the result. And by the way, without getting to identifying specific uh, groups of people within the Jewish community, I would say that within a big group in the Jewish community, that that is the case. How they get, they, they believe in doing good, actually. But how, they, but how they get there is less important to them. Things like telling the truth is of secondary significance. I have to know people that like that. And within a certain big element of the Jewish world is a whole swath of people who, in my view, telling the truth is not top, is not top priority. Yeah. There are other very good priorities. Truth-telling ain't one of them. And that's Rivka, actually. She doesn't care how you get there. She wasn't, the, 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 the result is what is important. I have a problem with that personally. I think it's very problematic, but that's a much bigger conversation. Does how you get, do the ends justify the means is the question. And by means, like it could be means which are uh, not actually honest, dishonest means. Was all that counts is the, is the, is the conclusion? Or is, the just, or is the way that you get there significant? I personally believe the way you get there is significant. Not everybody believes that. What's the difference? You got the right answer, right? So that's Rivka. 
What else? What other questions? Um, uh, Sarah? Can I ask a question, Rabbi Silver? Yes. Very, Shela Picorsit. Go ahead. It doesn't say in a certain debrot, Lotte Shaker, Lotirzach, Lotignav, Lotte Shaker. It says, Lotanebereacha et Shaker. And also, we pray every morning, Vodover Emet Bilvavon. That's right. Say, so where do you take the notion that take, talking the truth is so important? Well, first of all, the fact that somebody is not in, I, I would say from two places. First of all, we Jews don't believe only in the, in the Ten Commandments. Now, there's a reason the Ten Commandments used to be part of the davening. They took it out. Because nobody should think that the, the Sajigon, actually, and others following in his footsteps, believe that the Ten Commandments are actually headings. And when they wrote the 613 commandments, there were 10 groupings that they have under the 10 commandments. Lotishakru Lot, Lot is found in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the Chumash, those words, not in the 10 commandments. But I would say something more than that, which is I believe that, and I've devoted a lot of my own teaching to this, I believe that the stories are as important, if not more important than the actual laws. I think this Chumash fundamentally is stories. And the reason they're more important is because the laws have several big deficiencies to them. And one of them is it's the nature of law. There's one rule for everybody, but everybody has their own story. Two people do the identical act and they're very different actually. So what emerges from Sefer Breshit, I think, I hope emerges from it, is that, you know, the first mistake that the human being made, or the second mistake, the first was eating of this forbidden fruit, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is what happens afterwards, the excuse making, which is also a kind of lie. The, the lies come in many forms, but what did you do? You know, she and you made me do it. So, and there's even some truth to those, but they're not actually the truth. The idea of being fully honest as, as, as a necessity to, 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 to building anything and to creating covenantal community is something that emerges from the stories. So I, those are my two responses. A, I, we don't rely specifically on the uh, book. According to some, many, lotignov doesn't mean don't steal. Lotignov, the Gemara thinks, means do not kidnap. Do you think stealing is okay? I don't think so. Because the Torah elsewhere says lotignov, right? It's, it says other things, so it's not limited to that. But I think telling the truth is but you know, it reminds me what you're saying is sometimes people say, you know, you do something and with a certain degree say, where does it say that it's forbidden? You know what I mean? As if it doesn't actually say someplace that it's forbidden, it's okay. That's crazy thinking, you know, because there is a spirit to the, to the Torah and there's a spirit to the, to the law. There's a spirit to it. The law can't cover every case. It doesn't even cover the important questions in life about where we live, what we do, whom we connect to, the more important questions. So. I would say when we look at these stories, that is the stories. These are Sefer Yasha, it's called. This is teaching us a way, to, teaching us a way to live. Not necessarily everything the people do here are examples of good behavior, but we learn from mistakes as well, and so do they. And the great ones learn from the mistakes, whether it's Yaakov, Abraham, or whatever. Debbie, what do you want to say? Yeah, um, I think there's a uh, big dif there, there is a difference between the blessing of Yitzchak and the blessing of Rivka. Uh, by uh, the end of the Akedah, it says, Sha'ar Oivav. 
by Rivka, it says, uh, um, those that hate you. Charon is not just a place of anger. It's a place of deception, and it's a place where everyone sees enemies. And it's understandable then that Rivka uh, has to uh, sees what Asaph does. Uh, he, he, she, she's tuned in to the sinah uh, given her bracha. Right, well, she does certainly tune into that, that's for sure. And she's also, I mean, the cause of it, but no, for sure. Look, there's, they're not identical. The fact of the matter is that in terms of the person, they're completely different people. I mean, Yitzhak is, there's a certain innocence and purity to Yitzhak, actually. He's very, um, and a connectedness to God, which no one else shares. He's special in that sense. And Rivka is coming from a completely different world. She's coming from the world of Laban. She has to seek out God. She's a Doresh, because it doesn't come naturally to her. She wasn't born, it's not Abraham's sons, right? She's Laban's sister. I mean, so they, of course, they're different in that sense. So they're, of course, they're different people. I'm not suggesting they're the same, uh, but I do, point out that the two blessings, one is Oivav, one is Sona, but they're not that different. Atayi Vava is the first half of Yitzhak's bracha, and the second half is which is Sona, are different, but they're quite similar. That was my point, yeah. Debbie, what do you want to say? You're muted, unmute. Okay, Kenya. Okay, got it, yeah. sorry. Um, one, in connection with Sarah, we say that Chotamo shel Hashem emet. Yes, we do. That, uh, that the essence is the truth. Um, uh, the other thing was, I find it amazing that Yitzchak would, Yitzchak for whom looking for a wife was the, that whole big thing of Abraham sending uh, Eliezer to go far away, that that didn't imprint on him the importance of looking for a wife elsewhere that he wouldn't have thought that that would be the first step and that that wasn't a hint to him or a statement for uh, the covenantal thing that he would do that and remember that with Asav or that that would have been a tipping point for Rivka that he was not gonna give the covenant to uh, Asav. Good point, I mean, look. I don't know. I mean, maybe part of it is that the Yitzchak, you don't, you don't, you don't leave the land. Maybe that's part of it. Yitzchak never leaves. Yitzchak stays inside the land. So maybe for Yitzchak, his world is is contained within inside this land, which is Benot, you only have Benot Canaan. The idea of leaving the land is something that Yitzchak was forbidden to do. Well, Abraham didn't leave. He sent Eliezer. You don't have to leave. You can send a Shaliyah. Uh, true. Why did he send the Shaliyah? I can't answer those questions. I don't know. I don't think the Torah gives us enough information. At least I, I don't see it as to why he would, why could, how could he miss this point, which is so central in the story of Abraham? I don't right. really know. I have no idea. But in, in point of fact, I'm simply pointing out, in fact, he did not instruct Esau. And despite the fact that the person he, Esav is someone who does whatever his father wants. Esav is, there's nobody more beholden to his parent than Esav. So it's rather remarkable. He doesn't seem to understand that that is necessary for the 
covenantal blessing for whatever reason. But once Rifka points it out, he gets it. That is to his credit. No, that would, it just seems to me that would indicate that he was not going to give him the covenantal thing. No, my point is, he says he's going to die. He may die tomorrow. What, what do you mean? What's he going to do with it? Nobody gets it? It's mm -hmm. one blessing, as he says. It's the one blessing. <clears throat> he says, I want a blessing before I die. I'm old. I'm, I can't see. I'm, I could die in a week. I could die tomorrow. That's what, he doesn't die right away. But he's, that's what he says. I hear I'm, you. I'm, with name motif, I'm about to die. I want to bless you. So the and, he idea, only calls no for, and he only calls for Asaph. He calls Asaph. He has one blessing before I die. That's what he says. I that, see. To me, is a strong piece of evidence that there's no two blessings over here. There's one which he has, which he doesn't understand. And, and that's why he can't say Kachorech either until Rivka comes into the picture. And that's why she was chosen in the first place. That was my point. That's She's chosen to be the one who understands how it works. Like Avram would have chosen Yishmael. That's obvious. Sarah is the one who gets it, and Rifka gets it in space. Okay, let me. Let me uh, my quick question. Yeah, okay, two um, more to, questions, and we got to proceed. Go ahead. To support what Debbie said, I, I was thinking as you were talking, and, and I have a little license now to ask this. Um, Isaac redigs Abraham's wells, and that's a metaphor also for following in his father's footsteps and having to do what he has to do, and he got it. He, he understood exactly who Avimelech was. He had a tremendous amount of understanding and he knew what he had to do, which was redig his father's well. So I'm with Debbie here and, uh, and I'm thinking, how did he miss this one? Is, it, is the blindness uh, and the oldness, is this uh, supposed to show us that even Isaac, even Isaac, who got it, who got Avimelech, who didn't even allow his wife to be taken, whereas his father did, who redug the wells and got away from Avimelech's clutches. Even Isaac, who got it, didn't get it now. Is that what we're supposed to see? Well, I think there are a lot of different ways to go with this. One is that, one is that he loves Esau. We, we know he loves Esau more than he said, the Torah says. Sometimes when you love someone, you can't, you can't see the whole picture or you don't want to hurt them in any sense or you mm -hmm. fail to instruct them. That's one possibility. Mm -hmm. The other possibility is that he sees, he sees his own life as a life in which you imitate what, or you are deepening the traditions of your father. Yes, he mm -hmm. digs up the same wells. He calls them the same names that Avram gave him. And mm -hmm. that's for sure. But it's not necessarily the case that the way I see myself in terms of the tradition is the way I see my children in terms of the tradition. The best example of that would be uh, a book that is uh, beloved to me and to many of us, which is called Megillah Esther. How could it be that Mordechai HaYehudi, right? He's called Mordechai HaYehudi at every turn. And he tells everybody he's a Jew. Hello, what, what's your name? I'm Mordechai. I'm Mordechai the Jew. That's what he says, right? And he instructs Esther, for reasons unknown, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. And presumably, what he's thinking is, I'm a Jew, and I'm proud of it, but to be, but I'm also a refugee. Where are you from? I'm from the ghetto in Lodge, you know? That's where mm -hmm. I'm from. Mm -hmm. I'm from Warsaw, or from the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'm a Jew, and believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of being a Jew. Now we're in America now, it's a big country. My beloved daughter, you don't have to burden yourself with this. Because to be a Jew means to suffer, to be discriminated against. So 
you live your life and don't, don't, go, don't go down that path. I, I went down that path and I'm not unhappy about it because I'm proud to be Jewish. But you, my daughter, you don't need to go that path. Mm-hmm. And then many years later, she gets a midnight a call, midnight, save the Jewish people. Huh? What? I can save you. What do you mean save the Jewish people? The queen of Persia. What do you mean save the Jewish people? She has to be convinced. That's the point. So the fact that someone lives their own life a certain way doesn't necessarily translate into the way they transmit it to, to somebody else. That's my point over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. That the fact of the matter is, I think, fact, is that just based on what it says, he's going to give the blessing to Esau. And there's only one blessing because he thinks he may die in three days. So therefore, there is no other blessing. There's one blessing, as it says. And the, the idea that there are two blessings is coming from a different place, which is exactly what I'm hearing. How could Yisrael do this? Okay, you have a question, you know? But the fact of the matter is, that is what it's going to do. <laughs> there's, there's no information in the text otherwise. And if Rivka doesn't intervene at the end of chapter 27, he never says a word. Mm-hmm. Rivka intervenes. Rivka gets him to kasi b'chayai, right? Okay, now let's begin with... I just uh, asked a question. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, I was wondering if there's any connection between Ruvain and Asaph. I mean, it seems to me that they're both... Uh, I mean, like Asaph, his father doesn't even tell him afterwards. Uh, he has to figure out himself that he needs to get a, uh, a non-Canaanite wife. Uh, he just seems like a, you know, he, he, he tries, he tries, he tries to do the right thing and he just can't do it. You know, just like Ruvain tries to, to do what he's supposed to do, uh, you know, save his brother and, uh, and so on. And he can't do it. There's something, uh, there seems to be some theme about people who try to do something and just can't do it. Oh, that's true. It's a theme of, look, the point is that when you read the story here, let's say of Yaakov and Esau, you say to yourself, before, before you have the blessing, chapter 26, or you read the story, you say to yourself, look, it can't be Esau. Doesn't mean Esau can't get a blessing. Esau, by any measure in today's world, is the one who succeeds. Yaakov is the failure. As Yaakov himself says, how old are you? Not that old. I've had a tough life. My years are few and bad. That's what he says. Towards the end of his life, he describes his life. They were few, short, and brutish. They were few, and they were bad. Esau, on the other hand, owns a country. I'm not talking about has money. I'm not, I'm not talking about a corporate guy owns a country. Esau is Seir. He owns a country. Wherever he goes, an army goes with him. He has unlimited wealth. So who's the, who's the winner and who's the loser, you know? Today we measure things by return on investment. The universities, they measure by return on investment. Not about how much you learn there. Return on investment. So who, who had the better return on investment, Esau or Yaakov? Short term, Esau. Esau succeeds. Yaakov ends up dying in Mitzrayim. Doesn't want to be there. His sons will be enslaved there for a hundred, couple hundred years. And look at his life with Yosef, with Dina, with Lavan, you name it. His mother he never sees again. So from those perspectives, Esau is a success. So you say to yourself, though, but he married the Canaanite women. You can't get the cop. You say to yourself, it can't be Esau. Esau's out of the picture from day one. When you read the story of stealing the blessing, you say to yourself, but could it be Yaakov? Is this possible? How could such a person be covenantal of all things? That's, that, that, that's our story. The answer is he will be covenantal. But how that plays out is, this, is the great story we're about to begin, beginning with Vayetze. 
Okay, let me just, let me, let's continue for a little bit here. Then I'll stop one more time and take some questions at the end. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. So we're told Yaakov leaves, goes out from Beersheba. So the first thing we note is he leaves from Beersheba. Beersheba in Sefer Breshit is the place from which you leave. And I mentioned two other examples of that. One is the Akedah. Remembering the Akedah back in chapter 22, the Psukim before the Akedah, before God said in chapter 22, to the place that I will tell you, but the very end of chapter 21, So Avram lives in Beersheba. And not just lives in Beersheba, he plants a tree. And he settles there. He calls out to the eternal God. He's there for a long time. And the next verse is, God said to Abraham, leave Beersheba. You have to leave Beersheba to go to the place that I direct you to go. That's the first time we encounter it. Now we have over here, Yaakov leaves Beersheba. And in chapter 46, when Yaakov is about to go to Egypt, to Mitzrayim, to meet his son Yosef, chapter 46, Chapter 46, the Torah says that Yaakov realizes Yosef is alive and Yosef sent the wagons. Um, as chapter 46 begin, by Yisai Yisrael v'chol ha-shalom, by Yavo be'er ha-shavah, by Yisbach z'vachim re'rohei o'viv Yitzchak. So in 46, Yaakov goes to Mitzrayim, he leaves from Beersheba, and over here Yaakov is going to the house of Laban, and he leaves from Beersheba, which of course underscores the parallel between the experience in Mitzrayim on one hand and the experience Yaakov is about to endure being in the house of Lavan on the other. So Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheba, and furthermore, and this is important for us soon, it also suggests to us that in reading this particular story of Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheba, we should be thinking about the Akedah, that central story, the Akedah, the culmination of Abram's life where he discovers the sacred place where the covenant is affirmed, where he says, Yitzchak is my son, where he reclaims Yitzchak. And that story we have in the back of our minds always, but especially over here. So here they translate, he set out for Haran, which is probably the Pshat. There are many Midrashim over here that are bothered by Vayewe Harana. Sounds like he came to Haran, but that can't be the case because he didn't come yet to Haran. Because in the very next pasuk, it says he stops along the way. So there are all kinds of interesting midrashim about this, that he actually got to Haran and he goes back. We're going to stick to what the plain reading of the text is. So Yaakov sets out, sets out to go to Haran. Haran is the place his mother had spoken of. It's the same place, but she said Haran. But he hasn't gotten there yet. Now in the next verse, by Yifgaba Makom. So, so the plain meaning of the text is he he they translate he came upon a certain place. carries with a different valence. It's not just come upon, I mean came upon the word of Paga. Often in biblical Hebrew refers to some kind of violent act. 
Vayifgavo Vayomot in the book of Shmuel. Lifgoa with somebody, by modern Hebrew as well, Lifgoa with somebody means to harm them or to speak against them or to do them some kind of damage. Uh, right? So uh, uh, the terrorist attacks are called pigua, right? It was a pigua. It's the same word. Vayifgava Makom suggests a sense of collision. And I would say over here, what it suggests is Vayifgava Makom is not that Yaakov has, has an itinerary, you know, that he has four stops along the way on getting to Harad. You stop here, there's a, you know, this hotel, there's a Marriott along the way, you know. No, he's traveling along and Vayifgaba Makal, he collided with the place in the sense, not planned. He, he, he's in this place for a very simple reason. The sun sets. The sun is setting, he happens to be in this place. And therefore, he's going to sleep in this particular place. Because it's dark, you don't travel at night. He Rabbi Silver, one of the Rabbi Silver, it, it never means to that he's attacking what's that place standing. It doesn't mean it here, but the Medrash has, and I'll get to that. Okay. The Medrash, it's, a, it's not the Pshat. A no manner, shape, or form it is the meaning of this verse. Okay. I never think it is, but it's true that the Gemara in Brachot, and I'll talk about it, has Vayifgaba Makom. And he prayed in, the, in this place by God. He, he treated God in this place. Now, my point is that the plain meaning of the text is not just different, but opposite. Is that no, he's, he, he happens to be in this place. Sun is setting. He takes Me'avnea Makom, it means they translate correctly one of the stones, took one of the stones of the place, puts it under his head like a pillow, by and he went to sleep in that place. Now, let's reflect on this verse for a moment, what we see in this puzzle. Okay, what Rosie pointed out is, we'll get to that about praying in the place, but that's not the plain meaning. The first thing you notice in the puzzle is that there's a word that appears three times, and the word is bamakom. Not the word makom, which is place, but bamakom, the place. He came upon the place. He took of the ra a rock from the place. He slept in the place, in that place, definite article, in that place. Now the term that's a word that appears in one of the story in the book of Breshit, and only one, appears there four times. And that's the story of the binding of Isaac. He's directed to go and Avram comes of Hamakom Asher Marlo Elohim. And Avram names the place. Shame, right? Shame Hamakom Ahu Hashem Yireh. Right? So, in other words, it appears four times. The place, the place, the special place, the sacred place. And therefore, that's what's driving the Midrashim, by the way, that's, that connects, and the Ramban especially, but the Midrashim, that by Yifgaba Makom, that in some of the Midrashim, the place in which Yaakov is, is, is sleeping is none other than Haramaria, is none other than the place that Avram is, goes to, is sent to, or is told to travel to the place that God will tell him. So this is actually striking. If we accept this, then we're struck by the following anomaly. The story of the binding of Isaac those who have studied here in these classes over time know very well 
The story of the binding of Isaac is a culmination of Avram's life. At the end of his life, this nomad, basically, who is directed with the first lechukha to the special land, and finally, at the end of his life, is able to uncover or discover the sacred place. That's the culmination of his life. That's the story in which everything is right. He understands what Yitzchak's role is, how the covenant proceeds. He's discovered the holy place, and it's the holy place. He's able to discover the place in which God is seen and sees. But that's the end of a lifetime of, of, of moving about. The many false starts. He thought it was Beersheba, he goes to Hebron, many places. And that's the culminate that we get. He discovers the place at the end of his life, that is to say, that's a fitting conclusion in one sense to the Abraham stories. It's the last communication from God to Abraham. But here you have somebody who actually is in the very same place, but by accident. And not only that, there's little to suggest that this discovery of, of Neha Makom and Ba Makom and Vayifka Ba Makom can be seen as a culminating story because in point of fact, it's, it's, it's the beginning. He has this blessing which he got by hook or by crook. Okay, it's an appropriate blessing maybe, but now he has to run away. He's, he's going into exile. So it's curious, he discovers the holy place at the very time he's leaving the place. It's exactly the opposite of Abram. What do we make of this important phenomenon? He discovers the place at the very moment he's leaving. And here the point I wanted to emphasize is that the story of Avram and Yaakov are different stories. The story of Avram is about discovering the holy place. That's the story of Avram. The story of Yaakov's life is not about discovering the holy place. He discovers it by accident in the beginning of his career. His, his, uh, his mission and his struggle is to return. Is to return, is to come back. Yaakov's mission in life is to come back. In both stories, both in the Beersheva of chapter 28, where he goes to the house of Laban, and the question is, can he get back? Will he return or not? That's a big question. And if he can return, how will that play out? That's the first Beersheva leaving. And the second Beersheva leaving, of course, is, goes down to Mitzrayim. He will die in Egypt. His descendants will be in Egypt for many, many years. Can they escape Mitzrayim? It's not easy. As the story of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim, it requires extreme divine intervention to get us out. So in both of those stories, you go to a place where it's not easy to come back from. Yes, Rebecca had said, go for a few days. I will call for you and send for you and bring you back. But she never does, does she? Never. Question is, why not? We'll discuss it. But here's the point. The Hamakom, right from the very scratch, we're remembering the Akeda. And the question is now going to become, can he come back? But in this place, coming to the next pasuk, Yaakov has a dream. He's really the first person who's a dreamer. God appears in dreams earlier. But here we have Vayachalom, he dreams. Yaakov is the dreamer. And he has this very interesting dream. He has a stairway, they translate, that could be the case. Stairway. Sulam could be a stairway. Mutsav Arzav, standing on the ground, set on the ground. The Roshol, the top of it, 
is reaching the heavens. And God's messengers, angels, are going up and going down. And God was standing, it's not clear what the Allah is. Is the Allah of the Sulam or is the Allah of Yaakov? Standing above him and says, I'm the God of Avram and Yitzchak. So there's a promise. This is the covenantal promise. This land upon which you sleep, I will give to you and your descendants. Now there's the blessing. And a special blessing given to Yaakov, you will spread out in four directions, right, east and uh, west and east and north and south. Through you shall the nations of the world, the families of the world be blessed. We had that earlier. And now God continues. That's the first part of God's speech. And the next verse is, And behold, says God, part two of the, of the dream. I am with you, says God. I will protect you wherever you go. Bashivoticha, I will bring you back to this land, Adamazot. I will not forsake you, right? Until I have done what I have promised you. I'm not gonna leave you. I'm gonna be with you when you need be with you when you need me. And that includes protecting you and returning you to the land. That's part two of the so there's two parts. There's a covenantal promise, and then which includes Ufaratsta. We haven't encountered that word before. And part two, there's a promise of protection and return. And we ask ourselves the following question, or maybe Yaakov would ask it. I don't understand. My mother gave me a, a ticket. I'm coming back in three weeks. That's what she says. I'll call for you, maybe earlier, a few days. Go for a few days to, you, to, 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 to your uncle until it's safe to come back, till your brother forgets. And I'll call and bring you back. And now we have God speaking. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. When somebody says, I'm going to protect you, then you start worrying. Protect me from what? I'm going on a little vacation. Yeah, my brother's angry. Okay. Let me protect you. The cola, wherever you go, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to restore you to the land. What do you mean you're going to restore me? My mother's sending for me in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to forsake you. What? Until I do all that I have spoken. And suddenly you realize in this parcel, he's not going for a few days. In fact, without God's help, maybe he's going forever. Who says he's going to ever return? That's what you realize over here. The mission is perilous. We had no idea how dangerous it is. But here you see it straight out. So there are two things. There's the, this is the dream. On one hand, it's the dream of Yaakov has this dream. And he dreams of angels ascending and descending the staircase to heaven. And there's, right. And now the question is, how do you interpret the dream? How does Yaakov interpret his own dream? So Yaakov says, Yaakov so Yaakov wakes up. The first he says, he says, certainly God is the place. God is in this place. I did not know. We have to remember these words. Every word is special here. I did not know. 
says it straight up, Loyadati. I had no idea, he says. No, this is a special place. Loyadati didn't know it. He was frightened and he said, How awesome is Hamakom the place? This is none other than God's house. This is the gateway to heaven. Now, what does it mean? This is none other than God's house. What is he referring to when he says, This is none other than God's house? So he doesn't mean the place that he's sleeping. He doesn't mean that. That's not God's house. This is none other than God's house means that the staircase leads you to God's house. Right? Zeshar HaShamayim. This is the gateway. Where I am sleeping, he says, is the gateway to heaven. That's above. That's Beit Elohim. It's what the Midrashim sometimes call Yerushalayim Shomala the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly temple. What's above is God's temple, Beit Elohim. It reminds me when Moshe, in the book of Exodus, uh, when Moshe is instructed to build the Mishkan, to build God's temple. Remember what the Torah says several times about building the Mishkan? God says to Moshe, K'chol asher bahar what I showed you when you were on the mountain. Several times, that which you were shown is a, take it literally. There's, Moses is shown God's temple above. There's a temple up there. It's God's temple, the God's servants, the God, those that work in the temple, the angels that work in the temple, says God to Moshe, this temple that you saw, several times it's mentioned to see, what you saw, I showed you the picture. You see what's up here in this temple? You go downstairs and build it. That's the earthly Jerusalem. And that's and what Yaakov uh, says over here. Yaakov is gonna say very simply, I am gonna build God's temple on earth. That's my job. Beit Elohim. There's a Beit Elohim above, and there should be a Beit Elohim below, and there may be a connection between them, right? They're connected, but the, the Beit Elohim that I'm gonna build is down here. It's not up there. They, oh, the angels go up there, but we humans stay down here. We don't go up there. How that is he supposed to know? That's Migdal Bavel. 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 What does Bav mean? Bav Metziah. Bav is a gate. Bavel means God, the gate to heaven. Gateway to heaven is Bavel. That's what it means. Bavel means gateway to heaven. Yes, the Chumash plays with the name. They think it means gateway to heaven. We think it means confusion. But the Chumash knows it means gateway to heaven, right? But how but do you know? He was thinking that the human can ascend to heaven and control the heavens. Yaakov doesn't make that mistake. There's none other than the place of God's temple. And what I'm going to do, says Yaakov, he's going to say this, if you give me the opportunity, is I'm going to build Beit Elohim down on earth. I'm going to build God's temple on earth. That's what Yaakov says. And God's temple on earth, actually, the model for it is God's temple in heaven. But the human temple is on earth, not in heaven. But Rabbi Silver. Mission, to build Rabbi God's Silver. temple on earth. Okay. Now, let me just, we'll have, I'll stop at this point. This is one of the, I mean, this is an, actually an awesome chapter over here. And there's another point I want to make. You know, I'm teaching another class, actually, on Tuesday nights about prayer, which I like very much. And uh, I haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Um, 
But the story here, in my view, of Yaakov's vow, Yaakov's vow to build God's, God's uh, temple on earth, the kingdom of God on earth, that's Yaakov's mission. This story is one of the absolutely central stories that lies behind our, our uh, davening, actually. It could be actually the main story. Pick out, I pick out one story. This is the story. Nobody understands this, but I, I think I have a good insight over here. And someday I'll get to that in my prayer class. Maybe it'll come up here as well. But this is, Yaakov is about to uh, make a statement about how he sees his own mission in this world. And his mission in this world is not going to be the mission of his grandfather or his father, Abraham and Yitzhak. He's going to make a vow. A vow is a personal statement. He's going to make a personal statement how he sees himself in this world. What is his particular mission in the world? So we'll continue with this next week. I'll stop here. If any of you ask comments or questions, I'll be happy to entertain them. Otherwise, my email is dsober at risha.org. Uh, are there any other comments or questions here? Um, Laszlo, I see you have your hand up. Yes, Laszlo, yes. go ahead. Is there, a, is there a significance to the repeated Birashaisov in the plural? The word Rosh appears in the story several times. Um, no, but that, that it's in the plural. Instead of Rosh is, is that a plural? No, I wouldn't say it's a... No. Is that a plural? It's a poetic Rosh. I have to check into the grammar of Rosh Hashanah. I don't know. But the word, actually, the word Rosh does seem to be significant um, because it says, first of all, let's see. It says that he put the rock under his head, under his head. That's one place. And then it says the ladder is on earth, the Rosho Magia Hashemaima. So he says that the top, the Rosh of the ladder, um, uh, the ladder actually is ascending to heaven. So we suggest that there's something about that. And then once again, in verse 18, you have Rosh Hashanah a second time. Rosha again in verse number 18 appears twice. So your point is well taken that the word Rosh seems to have some significance. Maybe next week we'll try to figure that out. What Rosh Rashal Tov signifies, since it appears at least four times in the story, it would appear to be a word that we have to try to understand its place within the story. So thank you for that comment. We'll take a look at that next time about the Rosh, what that means over here. This is a critical story because it is, Yaakov says, basically, he explicitly says how he sees his mission if he says, you allow me to do it. I have a mission in this world, but I have to survive. I got to eat. I got to be, right? I need clothing. I need, I need shelter, right? If you give me food to eat, says Yaakov later on, and give me clothing. I need safety. I need security. You have to protect me. Bring me back in peace. And if you do those things, you create for me a secure place, and you give me some way to maintain myself, sustenance, and I don't come to harm. I'm able to, 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 to survive, and I'm able to have these things that I need for survival. I will do your bidding. That, my friends, is another word for that. We call that the Shimon Esrei. That is what the Shimon Esrei is, actually. 
the ones who understood this were the Baal Shem Tov and his followers. That's what it's about, actually. Actually. My mission. But to do my mission, I got to live. If I'm living in Afghanistan, they can pull me out of my house or kill me because I'm a woman or something. Then if, how could I do anything, right? How can you live in such a place? If I can't survive, I don't believe I'm starving. How can I, how can I do your mission if I'm worried that tonight I have no food? I'll, I'll die of hunger. So I need the basics. I need, the, not want, I need those things to live. I need a, a, a security in my community. I need to create a, a, a society which, which is safe to, and I can function in. That's half of our blessings. The first half of things I need, like sustenance, like good health, right? Etc. So those I need those things in order to fulfill my mission. Yaakov defines his mission a particular way. We'll get to this next week. Stuff is awesome, actually. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll uh, um, continue next just a week. Quick, quick, a quick question. Yes. The issue of the ladder going up, it's just a few chapters after the Migdal and it's above El, same language. Right. We know this becomes the legitimate way and why use this type of- That was um, my point. Im- my point Im- is the opposite of Bavro. It's exactly the opposite of Bavro. The Bavro yeah. point is the human wants to be God. Human thinks he can control God. Human's gonna to go to heaven. Yaakov has no such illusions. The angels go up and down the ladder. Yaakov stays on earth. Yaakov says, I'm gonna build a, 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 a temple down here, a sacred space down here modeled on, it's a Mishkan. It's modeled on God's temple, but it's not God's temple. We, we don't go to heaven, right? right. That's, that's bubble thinking. You're gonna ascend to the heavens. It you just seems like Isaiah chapter 14, you have the same thing. I will send the heavens, right? No, no, we it can't just send the like, heavens. We can't send like such- the heavens. But we I, can just, try to do some good in this world. Mm-hmm. Even our uh, limited abilities, we do the best we can in this world. We try to use God's temple as our model, right? But that's the difference. It's, it's, it's bavo, but the opposite. Sometimes the parallels <laughs> connote the opposite. It's exactly uh-huh. the opposite of Migdal Bava. Exactly the and opposite. The, and the Vayifka, it's almost like, I don't think it's not Prashat. It is challenging where he is going. It is juxtaposing and attacking that where he's going, and I'm saying that the, the, and it's prayer that he's using. That's what I meant. But the Vayifka is challenging that Macomb. And, well, we'll and see make- about that. I'll, I'll discuss next week uh, okay. how briefly, how the Gemara in Brachot understands Yaakov's prayer over here. But that is very significant. That. Okay, well, so we'll stop at this point, continue next week. Uh, thank you. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, bye bye. All right. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's joining us on Zoom and on Facebook and on Rachel Live. Our next class coming up is a new one starting on Monday with Rabbanit Leah Sarna at um, at Monday on 8 p.m. She will be teaching a class called Prisbal, a Talmud Shir. If you are interested, you can find out more and sign up on drisha.org slash classes. Thank you everyone for joining us and have a good day.